I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Yes. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome. Um, coming to you on a pretty pretty bright night in Sydney. Isn't pretty it? bright, pretty mm. hot. Mm. Summer's around the corner. I love that cold snap. Yeah. I'm all about cold weather. And I, I like telling people I'm into cold weather. <laughs> I know, I feel like it's edgier than liking hot weather. It's like, yeah. ooh, I like the cold. I'm so European and cosmopolitan and Northern Hemisphere. Well, you're a bit of fish out of water in Sydney, yeah. given our temperature. Yeah, and I, and I hate humidity too. In fact, I think I told you like last Christmas, like Christmas before last, Cole told me that the th- like, there were three things I kept talking about mm. all Christmas: true crime, <laughs> steak tartare, and humidity. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so it's like a big. It's a big topic. That, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Something you kept uh, kept returning to, I kept just, circling I, around. I just. I, I'm yeah. surprised bats. No bats. Let's not bring back onto the podcast. <laughs> Those of you who know me and have been listening to the podcast for some time may know that there's some kind of fairly serious bat phobia. Um, that well, the bats tend to come out in summer, so perhaps humidity is some sort of weird displacement. Yeah, no, I, trust me, I, I, I'm working through. I'm working through all of this, and, and thank you for reminding me that bats come okay. out in summer. It's something I'm really aware yeah, of. Yeah. Um, have you heard that uh, there's recently a lot of flying foxes that are biting cattle, so they're concerned about a spillover of a Hendra virus. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, yep. Yeah, let, let's just move on. Um, yeah. For, for those who don't know the backstory, um, actually, I, I think if I, if I go into the backstory, the barley backstory and the, the monkey bite, this is all going to, it's the whole podcast. It's is all come become, back to me now. It's a song by Celine Dion. The whole podcast is going to become about bats. So let's, just, let's just leave the bats. Let's park the bats. We'll come back to the bats. Um, also, just a disclaimer, I ordered some smoked salmon mm. about 20 minutes ago so it may come during this first part of the mm. podcast we're going to review that delivery as well yep in which in which in which five stars yeah well <laughs> highly uh, recommended yeah so this is something that seems to be happening quite a bit that just stuff is coming so but yeah. you know, let, let the texture of everyday life in you yeah know? like I why think not that's right yeah. i think that's right yeah. a realistic insight into mm. into your a window into your life yeah and if you will. i just wanted to have some protein because i just ran nine kilometers um it's just a part, of, part that of my protein. life. Just, yeah. I, I run, I podcast. It's just, you know, it's all it's happening. It's just what I do. Yeah, it's, just, it's boring, but it's me. It's a great way to keep in shape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, just my funny little funny little hobby, just running long distances. Um, but I reckon for this first show, even if I walk away from the mic, you can just keep talking about it. Because it's so, I don't think I've ever seen a show that is so... I mean, I, this, I think this show is very funny on its own terms. Yeah. I was just laughing watching it because I was like, this is... I have never seen a show that is so directly in Andrew's wheelhouse. Well, yeah. So I think if we're show. talking about the, uh, you know, the smoke salmon deliveries being window into your life, yep. I think two of the shows well, tonight like, are going to be strong <laughs> windows into my life. Let's, let's just let's uh, just pause that for a second. I mean, like, I'm not, I don't think smoke salmon is as much a window into my life as a TV show is into your life. I mean, that's the, the kind of subtext there is like, TV's my thing, smoke salmon's your thing. I mean, there are TV shows that are windows into my life I as don't well. mind a bit of smoke salmon every now and then. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't mind a little bit of Stallone every now and then, but I'm just saying that the kind of the food television it, it's a false equivalency i'm just saying <laughs> so we're doing we're actually doing two shows hmm. from the sheridan expanded universe so hmm. i think i think it, it's incumbent on me to to fill you in a little bit about taylor sheridan and his project i'm not sure it's incumbent but it would be helpful it would be helpful <laughs> so taylor sheridan is a is a writer and uh erstwhile director hmm. of film and television he's increasingly hmm. become a showrunner and probably most famous for Yellowstone, running mm-hmm. Yellowstone. And because of the, the enormous popularity of Yellowstone, which, which started out as being a sleeper hit, especially a lot of, a lot of audiences that you know tending to it during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it obviously inspired a whole televisual universe mm-hmm. based on Taylor Sheridan's particular mode 
uh, modus operandi. So there are certain characteristics of the Sheridan universe, mm. Billy, and I bet you can probably take guess us, a few of them. Take us through them, yeah. So the idea of the, ter- ter- uh, the Sheridan universe is that he's planning to tell, you know, marginalised, subordinated, uh, you know, oppressed stories about the American heartland. Yeah. Mar- marginal, mar- <laughs> just, just to kind of get, just to clarify that a little bit, marginalised, oppressed white men. <laughs> just, just that slight, that slight qualification. Yeah. Not to be Television that guy. Television stories that we haven't seen. Yeah. You know, or about... Maybe- White men in yep. Heartland America yep. who've been traditionally marginalised yep, exactly. by, by mainstream Co- television. Coastal elites. It's all about <laughs> coastal those coastal elites. elites. Yeah, coastal yeah. elites. The unspoken. Mm. The unspoken, you know, unheard from, uh, you know, people... The lost living generation. In, li- lost generation yep. living in Heartland America. Yep. Silenced mm. by the prevailing, you know, coastal orthodoxies and ideologies. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Sheridan is, is designed, you know, planning to, to shine a spotlight on these disadvantaged stories and thank, here thank from goodness. these men yeah these dangerous men yep Does, doesn't these ma- complex men I, I'm, just, I'm just wondering in this case isn't it about a new york gangster who feels out of place in tulsa like isn't he from the coast yeah but he goes but his preference <laughs> but stallone's preference is for the coast is for new york yes but this big ellipsis in oh. his period in, t- in prison okay. suggests that his story he's been unheard He's he's been yeah, I just he's like no, I, one's, no one's spoken for him. No one has given him visibility. I feel like I just poked a big hole in your logic, <laughs> but let's okay. Ta- yeah, and it's worth saying too. Yeah. These shows are all on Paramount Plus. Yes, they There's are. An exclusive. Oh, no, well, ironically, because Paramount originally was not planning to to launch its own streaming service for whatever reason, they sold the rights to another provider uh-huh. um, whose name just escapes me right now. So ironically, it's not actually playing on Paramount Plus Yellowstone. Uh-huh. So okay. you might even describe the Sheridan Expanded Universe as also a way of giving televisual content to Paramount Plus. Okay. So yeah, so you can find all the, the Sheridan Expanded Universe mm-hmm. on Paramount Plus, mm. but not Yellowstone mm. itself, which is the urtext. So I think so rap- it's really... Yeah. Rap- rapsodic. <laughs> You're rapsodic about the... Well, I think it's a really interesting project. And obviously... You know, the first wave of quality television mm. was about complicated men, mm. the the male anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's, I think a sub- subsequent waves of complicated television have spun out and we've seen complicated women, we've seen other different... Everyone uh, everyone gets to be complicated. Everyone, everyone. Everyone, you get to be complicated and you get to be complicated. <laughs> everyone gets their, gets their moment of complication. Complications up the wazoo. <laughs> so Sheridan has returned to that trope, I think. But mm. in particular... He's shining a light on this particular, you know, geographical, cultural milieu. So it's all about heartland visibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ap- yeah. A- a- apart from the protagonist who comes from New York and, and wants to stay in New York, but yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I, I in spirit, in spirit. <laughs> so we're going to see, we're going to see two of these, or we're going to review two of these mm. Sheridan expanded universe mm. shows this week. So the first is Tulsa King, which is the most recent mm. incarnation, and then we're going to return to at the end in the archive corner choice to the mayor of Kingstown, um, which is a very unfortunate name given the overlap between the Kate Winslet show. I, I wondered whether, yeah. that was, whether that was intentional <laughs> well, on, on the it, part of one of the two shows. Yeah, it's so it was, similar. I think it was a massive misstep given, you know, whenever you said the mayor of Kingstown, I said, oh, I love Kate Winslet. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy I, Renner. <laughs> I, actually, uh, I actually had that experience a few times where I, I would talk about mayor of Easttown and mention Kate. Like, I actually 
had conversations where for a couple of minutes I'd be talking at cross purposes with someone about the two, the expanded mayor universe, <laughs> the mayor mayor universe. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it was an easy mistake to make mm. given how proximate they were mm. in their release schedule. Mm. Um, and obviously the mayor of Kingstown was, was very much overshadowed by the mayor of Mayor of Easttown. Mayor of Easttown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, come on. They're yep. so close. So Tulsa King. Mm. Let's go through a little bit about the mm-hmm. backstory of Tulsa King. Um, so this is a starring role for Sylvester Stallone. Mm. As far as I'm aware, his first starring role in... In television. In television. I think so, yeah. Or perhaps at least he might, he might well have starred in television mm. in the early part of his career. So it's, 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 mm. it's, it's his, you know, putting his imprimatur on television. Mm. So... Oh, yeah. So it's his first leading role, at least. So he plays a mafia capo who's just got out of prison after serving a very long sentence, copping a rap for a, a more senior Don. So he believes in honour. He believes, he in, believes honor, in the code. Respect, traditional heartland values, Billy. Mm, in New so. York. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe the message of the show is the heartland is where he belongs all shifted. along. Or the heartland shifted. Yep. Okay. Mm, okay. What, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Well... Well, we'll go into that. We'll go into we'll that. We'll go okay. into that. All right. So he you know, is expecting to be honoured and respected for taking <laughs> this rap. And instead, he's sent to the proverbial wilderness, Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm. the new frontier where there's no mafia or clear mafia establishment. So he's, he's sent to basically set up a criminal organisation in this new space that represents this kind of tabula rasa. Mm. So you see various um, hijinks associated with his, you know, attempts to set up this criminal enterprise. And in particular, I think what's interesting about this show is that he's a fish out of water in two senses. So because of this long ellipsis between, you know, him being sent to prison and being released, which we don't see, uh, he's... Both out of place and out of time. You, you just keep going. I'm going to get my smoked salmon. Just, just keep rolling. Keep rolling. So he's both out of place and out of time. Obviously, uh, being Tulsa, Oklahoma, the cultural uh, mores, the particular milieu is very different to what he's become accustomed to. Not only that, he's also out of joint with current trends, and in particular, we see this. We see this at the beginning where he discovers that a whole host of formerly uh, industries that were that were run by shadowy criminal enterprises mm. have instead become mainstreamed. So there's a, there's a great moment at the beginning of this where he, he drives uh, past a, a medical marijuana dispensary mm. and, and he's totally perplexed because this obviously was formerly the province of the, the mob. So there's, there's a great moment where he suddenly realises that all this criminal under... Uh, you know, criminal network has just been rendered visible mm. so he has to almost restore restore these kind of uh, invisible networks mm. of exchange mm. to render himself and to insert himself into these into these you know uh, chains of uh, supply and demand and on that note i i enjoyed how how flimsy the premise <laughs> was so basically he gets off the plane in tulsa he gets a taxi the taxi driver becomes his crime driver yeah the first marijuana dispensary he sees he takes over <laughs> yes. do, do, does he even get to tulsa it's it's, like, yeah the periphery yeah it's in like, between it's yeah. like tulsa. the ex-urban area between the airport and the yeah. and downtown this is like tulsa city limits king <laughs> yeah. like he doesn't even get to tulsa like well, he has every 
it stays in the first motel he sees. Yes. It just, that, that, that's like that's like that's like the show, right? Just the first thing that comes to mind. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. But but I, I he think, also doesn't really make me take great pains to conceal himself. No. So he's very. It's very obvious that mm. he's a mafia don. Mm. He dresses like a mafia don. He acts like a mafia yep. don. Uh, when he goes into this first dispensary, he cold cocks about five people mm. to assert his authority. Mm. Why they call why they don't call the authorities is beyond me. And this, this is the running joke of the show, right? Him saying, you know, we've got to keep the marijuana dispensary secret from the police. No, it's legal. Oh, we still have to do it. No, it's legal. I mean... You I, need me. From what? For yeah. protection. I never needed protection until you <laughs> yeah, arrived. Exactly. <laughs> There's a weird paradox at the heart of this show, which I think also works at a meta level. Hmm. So hmm. I think what's, what's so great about this show is that so much of this is playing on Sylvester Stallone's star image. Mm. And in particular, the slightly superannuated trope of the, the 80s style action hero. Mm. So like, like uh, his, his character, Stallone himself has been in the, in the cinematic wilderness for the last 20 mm. years with the decline of that particular genre. Mm. So he's been slumming it in you know, VOD movies and nostalgia pieces like, mm. like the, Expendables. the Expendables. So in some ways, his character in this is very much aligned with his star mm. image mm. and his return and how arbitrary it is in some ways, mirrors the return to this hard man, 80s action well, hero you, trope. And if you think about it, I mean, the prison term of the character basically corresponds to Stallone's Bronze Age. Yeah. So him getting out of jail, you know, 20 years have elapsed, he's dislocated, put in a new place. It's funny, like, I, th- I thought that what worked about this actually was that, and I think this is actually quite different in some ways to some of the other Taylor Sheridan stuff I've seen, it was almost a sitcom. Like, the vibe was almost mm. a sitcom. It certainly has the laziness of a sitcom, <laughs> which I think works really well. I mean, so many recent action reboots are either really self-serious, like you think of some of the later Rambo films, are really self-serious and humourless, or they're hyperactively camp. Yep. They, they're camp without any real joy to it. But between those two extremes, the sententiousness and the camp, high camp, they don't capture that sense of play that you find in great action films mm. and that ability to modulate from drama to comedy in a, in a really seamless way. So yeah. I think, I think the, best action, the best action movies, especially the 80s, mm. the steroidal action mm. movies, always have an element of hyperbole in them. So there's always an element there of like latent, yeah. latent self-parody, yeah. but it can't be acknowledged. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It can't be acknowledged. And that's what's great about this. It, yeah. it treads that same that same line. Exactly, exactly. and that, that's what I thought really worked about and it. It is just so low-key and so sitcom-y. And Riley funny. Yeah, and just just basically gives Stallone room to do. Like, a lot of it is just shtick. Yeah, about it's Stallone stuff, doing Stallone-y things. That, yeah, <laughs> stuff, stuff that's kind of... Stuff that's changed since the 80s, stuff that's changed since the 90s. Yeah, I just, I just thought it really worked in that kind of low-key way and was very funny for that reason. Mm. I think the other reason mm. is, well, how do you make an original mob movie in 2022? Mm. Mm. The answer is you've got to you've got to decenter New York mm. and those old style criminal mm. uh, networks and enterprises. It doesn't make sense. Instead, a lot of these, you know, you imagine the criminal enterprises are migrating closer to the the Mexican border, mm. and we're starting to get this transnational mm. element in in the crime. And that you know, they, you might even describe the heartland as the soft underbelly through which criminal activity enters the United States. Although, that said, like, I wonder if this is even going for originality. Like, I feel like that's not even what it's really going for. Like, it's more of a warm bath kind of television show. Like, I don't don't think it's... Like, it reminded me a lot of Lilyhammer. 
in some ways. Like, the, <laughs> well, yeah. I think it's it's very similar to Lily Hammer, but I thought Lily Hammer was going for quirkiness and originality, and that that Mexican connection you've said has already been explored so comprehensively by Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I thought this didn't even aspire to originality; it just aspired to a series of comforting riffs without becoming too too vacuously nostalgic or too or getting your hopes up too much for something that it wasn't. It, it reminded me, it's quite geriatric. Like, yes. It reminded me a lot of, I thought. I think it, for me it's closer in spirit to something like Last Vegas. <laughs> Remember that film where Michael Douglas and his buddies yeah. go to Vegas? This yeah. is kind Space of like... Space Cowboys, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is... This geriatric is, action, action yeah. sort of uh, cinema. And it's funny, I mean, it's it does, it does make you realise how completely exhausted the action film and the mafia film have become, or mm. action and mafia genres. I mean, when we were growing up in the 90s, they were the two main poles for big screen masculinity, mm. action cinema and mafia cinema. And I think this series kind of kind of acknowledges that both of those moments are over, but that empty nostalgia is not that interesting either. So just, it, it reminds me of like late career Bob Dylan, like it's gotten its groove, it knows what it's, it knows what works. It's classic. It's classicist mm. in that sense, but I, mm. I feel like what I like about it is it's not trying to break the mold. Yeah, it treads that line really well. Yeah, I think as well. Like there's there's a lot of wry humour about Stallone's age mm. as well. So in the course of you know introducing himself mm. to Tulsa and its its inhabitants, mm. he befriends a series or a bunch of women uh, who are having a bachelorette party, and and he takes them to a club, and mm. and then ends up spending the night with one of them. <laughs> and the, the morning after, he's sort of discloses his age <laughs> and the woman he was with says that's not an age gap that's a chasm I know yeah yeah <laughs> and walks out on him yeah yeah and he's kind of sort of you know sitting there unmanned mm. so and that's, uh, that's the closing note of the episode yeah the closing basically. note of the episode yeah, yeah. is is this sense of you know this this does this action trope still still hold water mm. in 2022 mm. and I think the Sheridan universe will say yes it does mm. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> but 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 that is the complication. Yeah, that is the complication. Is he a dinosaur? Is he? Does he represent these this value system, this uh, this ideology that is that has been thrown out? Mm. And Taylor Sheridan's answer to that is generally no, mm. no. There's there's still an ongoing vitality to mm. this trope and it's, these characters. It's like he captures, yeah, or or that he or that he captures their irrelevance, their irrelevance in a comic. The character, this kind of. This mode's irrelevance in a comic way, without being disrespectful or blandly nostalgic. It's mm. just—it's affectionate. Mm. It's very affectionate, yeah. and it—and it's very respectful of Stallone and his legacy. So, mm. uh, my hope for this actually would be that there isn't that much narrative complication. Like, I think it, it's basically sitcom, observational comedy, riffing, character-based. I'd actually hope they keep because this is something I felt a little bit about, you know, show Barry. I thought all the... I mean, it's, it's a different thing, but it's a similar premise in that it's a, mm. a transplanted gangster into mm. a completely different um, context. And that was a show where I thought so much of the comedy stemmed from character interactions. It was mm. almost a pity when the organised crime stuff came back mm. in. So mm. I, I, my hope for this would be that... If <laughs> Barry, ba- Barry almost became the, the auteurist cin- uh, sort of cinema that you know, the, the kind of director... Bill Hader wanted to make. I agree. Rather, rather than like, the, the kind of quaint HBOE sort of sitcom, yeah, yeah. Water sitcom that he was kind of 
you know, assigned to make. A bit like, I feel like we've mentioned this quite a bit on the podcast, but Big Stan, the auteurist (laughs) Rob Schneider film. There's something something about that film that keeps me up (laughs) at night. That was the moment when Rob Schneider curdled for you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's the film where I think it's directed by Rob Schneider and it's got all these crane shots and stuff that recall. That film will not leave me. Like It's (laughs) It's Rob Rob Schneider's Hudsucker Proxy. It it stayed with him. It's his big play. I'll... I like the you know, like the Hudsucker proxy. No, but it's it's that yeah. that same grandiose ambition. Yep, exactly. It's probably not you know yep. not matched in its, yep. in its execution. Exactly. So, I think this will be this will be plot driven. I hope it is yeah. because that's that's got it's got there's got to be some sort of propulsion in the plot. And there's also got to be you know Stallone has got to be you know his masculinity has got to be restored. His status yeah. has got to be restored. That's I, the trajectory. Said, of this. I, I think I have different hopes. I, I would like this to become a sitcom. <laughs> right. Stallone at home. I think that I don't think the Sheridan universe is about sitcommy energy. Yeah, <laughs> although I think that's what makes this pilot work for me. I mean all, all the best yeah. bits for me were I mean obviously you've got to have some kind of narrative architecture, yeah. but the pilot seemed to get that that was just a pretext to spend time yeah. with Stallone almost doing stand-up yeah. from person to person. So that, that, that's what I liked about it. Yeah, um, yeah but I'm, yeah. I mean, you know, I it's thought true. Was... Stallone hasn't really had an amazing comic vehicle no. for his talents. So no. Like, you know, Schwarzenegger had a great one. You know, Bruce Willis had a couple of well, great ones over there. The satirical Stallone was not his, his you know, no. not his great wheelhouse. Like, stop or my mum will shoot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, I do quite like that film, I have to say. Like, <laughs> that's, I, I went through a phase where I went through all the films in, the, I guess, the expanded Golden Girls universe. So that's Estelle Getty plays a big role in that. Um, yeah, although I tend to think that action stars don't work that well in straight comedies either. Like, I'm, I, I'm not a massive fan of that. I think, I think that a long-form television... Like, I think sitcom as opposed to comedy. Like, I think when you have an action star in a straight comic film, it can get a little bit exhausting. Like it's the mm. same energy mm. as action, but just it's it's kind of something incessant about it when it's translated into comedy for me for the most part. But just the low-key, lazy energy yeah. of a sitcom, yeah. I think that's what's bubbling up through the surface. Yeah. So that's I, I liked it in, yeah. that, in that respect. And this is definitely, by no means, quality television. And I think the somewhat mediocre reviews reflect mm. hopes that it would be. Um, but I don't think... Sheridan's shows are necessarily, you know, rise to that level. No, they're, they're, I think they're best when the action is is tempered with mm. this kind of genre. He's not only about restoring Heartland stories, but I think restoring genre. Yeah, to sure. to television. Sure. Um, and look, I think out of the three I've seen, Yellowstone, Mayor of Kingstown, and this this was by far and away the one <laughs> I, I like the best. I think. Okay, so, this is his least characteristic mode. Yeah, slightly awry comic mode. Yeah, I thought that worked really well. Um, I'm not a huge fan of incessant seriousness in yeah. television, and just you know to f- foreshadow, I, I really liked a lot about Mayor of Kingstown. I didn't dislike it by any sense, by any means, but yeah, just the incessant seriousness becomes a bit monotonal for me. Mm. Whereas here, I like the playfulness, I like the spark, I like the wit just the gleam in Stallone's eye. So mm. I, I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I probably mm. laughed out loud more than I have in a long time watching yeah. a pilot club show. So yeah, I'm an in. I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm hard in. <laughs> okay, moving on to our second show this week. It is an adaptation of the novel Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodessa Ackner. Mm, are you a fan of Taffy? Uh, are you a Taffy fan? This is my first... This is my first interaction with Taffy. Oh, interesting. Although, isn't isn't Taffy like a, a lolly as well? It Salt, is. Saltwater Taffy? <laughs> it is. I've tried it's that. very floss, isn't it? A very? Really? Oh, I don't know. Okay, because I, I once ate something in the States I was told was Taffy, but oh, okay. it may not have been. Okay. okay. Is uh, it toffee or is it uh, floss? 
it, it was like a weird chewy thing. It, it felt it, it felt like kind of condensed fairy floss, oh, like okay. so fairy floss that had been prepackaged. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it didn't taste much like salt. Anyway, um, but <laughs> yeah. So this is it's it's a series based on the best-selling book by Taffy Brodessa Rachner, and there's four main characters, four main players in the pilot. Um, uh, there's a couple, Fleischman and his wife Rachel, played by Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes, and Fleischman's friends Seth and Libby, played by Adam Brody and Lizzie Kaplan. And Fleischman is a very successful Upper East Side doctor, mm. um, who's hepatologist. Hepatologist. Who's? Yeah. Who, I thought that was a hepatologist at first was someone who dealt with snakes, but apparently someone who deals with livers. Herpetologist. 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 <laughs> I think. Oh, I just dropped my microphone. The mic drop moment. Mic drop moment. The uh, the tripod is. These tripods, um, and there's there's some scenes where he waxes lyrical about the liver, yes. about how incredible he stares off into it's the distance. It's forgiving organ. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it regenerates. You can just see everyone else in the vicinity, just like, <laughs> can we please just get back to the patients? Um, yeah, so he's he's an Upper East Side doctor. Um, his wife leaves him. We, he, the wife is Claire Danes. We see, we see very little of her during this pilot. We mainly see her in well, flashbacks. In, yeah, and the, in the contemporary. In the contemporary of the, of the, of the yeah, story, yeah. but even the flashbacks are pretty brief. I think, yeah, like she's we pretty, don't. She's pretty opaque, unknowable, inscrutable. It's a bit like um, Tony Collette in the Staircase. Like she mm. just, she's not quite present. Mm. And he's, he, did the owl do it? Did the owl? Is do that it? why Flashman is in trouble? <laughs> exactly, um, Central Park owl. And yeah, so she she's left him. Um, he's having a midlife crisis. He's on the dating apps a lot. He's getting a lot more game than I would expect from Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> but we'll come back to that. And all of a sudden she vanishes, right? Mm. So she um, she drops the kids off, I think, at 4am. Mm. He's really annoyed about that, but it actually has turned out to be the prelude to her going missing completely. So mm. a lot of the pilot is about her absence um, and what it means. And the kind of other side of the story is him talking about this with his best friends. Um, and are they a couple? No. No, no, they're not. They're not no. a couple, no. no. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, the... Um, Lizzie Kaplan character goes home at the end. So his, his best friend, played by Lizzie Kaplan, Libby, has reconciled herself to a suburban life. Um, she lives in New Jersey. And for a film that is so bound up in the Upper East Side, like New Jersey is like another universe. Yes. Like New Jersey is hell <laughs> in this version of New York. So New, New, New Jersey is resigning yourself to a life of yep. suburban mediocrity. Everything that New York is, is not. No. So what, what was your take on this? Like, I, I had mixed feelings about it. What, yeah, what did you think? I, I think well, there's a few interesting things about this mm. series. I think the, the first thing it captures, I think, which is, which is very true to life, is the sense that although you can be chronologically the same age as someone, mm. you can be in a very different life stage mm. and a very different uh, state of your, your kind of development. Because Flashman has actually, a yeah. kind of regression here, doesn't he? Yeah, you can even move radically, mm. you know, jump forward and back in time. Mm through changes in your social familial circumstances mm. so yeah Fleischman's obviously divorce propels him into this world of you know fast hookups mm. app-based dating um and so yeah effectively he goes back in time mm. um you might describe that as a regression or a or a a um return to return to a kind of you know mid-20s style hedonistic Lifestyle, And I wonder if there's something about that regression that's historical as well. So it feels like, mm. I mean, Fleischman feels like a character out of the 70s, right? In some mm. ways. So he, he feels, he's a lot like Woody Allen. Yeah. He's exactly like Woody Allen. Yeah. In some ways. So he's, I mean, I, I found him as a character quite insufferable. So he's the kind of person who, under the guise of neurosis and self-deprecation, basically talks at people all the time mm. about whatever he wants. There's a lot of verbal diarrhea. There's a lot he's of verbal diarrhea. And... The font of the show is the Woody Allen standard font, you know, that yes. Woody Allen. So it's obviously in the tradition of Woody Allen. But also it, it reminded me of a kind of a 70s style of fiction. So people like John Updike, 
um, Saul Bellow, the, the everyman, yeah. The, yeah. the New York everyman, <laughs> trying to come to terms with the female species <laughs> who just won't stop throwing themselves at yeah. him. So it, yeah. it feels so like... masculinity unmanned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but also the kind of the lovable rogue nerd that, you know, like w- w- women are continually into him and he's just kind of befuddled by it. Mm. So it felt like it was a bit regressive in terms of, I guess, genre as yeah. well. I, I yeah. didn't buy that Jesse... Because a lot of the show is just him swiping through endless nudes yes. um, of every attractive woman in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I bought that Jesse Eisenberg would have this much pull <laughs> yeah, on I the mean, apps. Maybe people are just really into the liver. Yeah, they're true. There's just a lot of hepatologist true. fans out there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Although when he's talking about the liver to his colleagues, they seem to zone out pretty quickly. They do zone out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they quickly divert back to House Life on the Apps. Yep. So, yep. So that's the most interesting thing about Flashman, probably yep. his his reversion to a, a kind of adolescent state, but but yep. a more successful state than he was as an adolescent because it's it's evident that he wasn't very successful with women mm. as a young man. So this mm. is a kind of there's a kind of second a sec, second uh, spring, sure. if you will, in his life. And I think that that is interesting because it does contrast with his best friend Lizzie Kaplan, who mm. is living this more dull suburban life and. Mm. There's a sense that this, the dissolution of his marriage, is also causing ructions outside of that, including in mm. his friendship group. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a, there's a lot of a weird sort of sense of anxiety mm. that this provokes amongst his friendship. That's group a more as interesting well. part of the film in some ways, mm. isn't it? The relationship with the friends. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's there's something slightly awry about this series. Mm. I, I agree that um, he is guilty of you know fulfilling a lot of those Woody, mm. Woody Allen. Know, archetype know-it-all yep. um, characters who are a little bit on the nose and especially you know, given what's happened mm. to that <laughs> to Woody Allen um, mm-hmm. since but um, th- I think what's interesting about this is it, it does take a slightly awry mm. uh, glance at this character I think mm. epitomized by the kind of visual motif that starts the series so you have a shot a sort of pan of the New York skyline that's inverted mm. and it sort of slowly mm. <laughs> uh, rectifies itself. And I mm. think the same way his life has been inverted and something slightly askew, mm. awry. And I think that part of that's provided by the voiceover narration, which is actually provided by uh, Lizzie Kaplan's character, not mm. Fleischman himself. Mm. Or his wife. Yeah, which is a bit of a departure from mm. Woody Allen films, as far as I'm aware, unless you're aware of something different. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you have a lot of Woody Allen films where you nominally see it through a female character's perspective, mm. like Hannah and her sisters or Alice or husbands and wives. So I think you do see a bit of that there as well. But I, I agree, like the series seems more, it seems more self-conscious about the Woody Allen archetype. And mm. as you said, it seems like it's interrogating why New Yorkers are so attached to it. Mm. Mm. And there's, the, there's certainly a sense of... Upper East Side insularity, oh, the bubble. I mean, I mean <laughs> leaving leaving the you know extremities of Manhattan feels yep. like you know driving to Mars. Well, from from this series, there is there is nothing that is as serious has ever been as serious or will ever be as serious as a New York divorce. Absolutely, like nothing. War, <laughs> famine, climate change, nothing compares. <laughs> nothing compares to two people getting divorced on the Upper East Side. I agree. I Cataclysmic agree. proportions. <laughs> I agree. It might mean. You need to timeshare your Hamptons yep. mansion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there there is something, and I think that that interesting relationship between Lizzie Kaplan and you know uh, Lizzie Kaplan's character and Jesse Eisenberg is pretty much by the end of this yeah. pilot episode. And I think that it does have a very interesting little little sting in its tail. Resonant, yeah. Resonant there's, a, there's a resonant ending mm. that suggests there's a whole lot going, a whole lot more going on mm. in this friendship group than perhaps mm. first meets the eye, and that actually I thought. Provided a real uh, propulsive narrative hook to this, and that that 
that really snared me. That's interesting because that 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 is definitely the most interesting part of it. Mm. So if it goes in that direction, I think it could be interesting. And I mm. guess in terms of what you're saying too, that the fact that Claire Danes is absent for so much contours that as well. Yeah. Like this yeah. kind of ellip- ellipsis. Yeah, there's the, there is that, that sense of ellipsis. Mm. And um, she's such a uh, an ambiguous character. Mm. There's a sense that this is this was relationship was on the rocks for a long time. Mm. But not only has she renounced him, she's renounced her children as well. Mm. So she's disappeared and she she's uncontactable even by her children. So she's renounced the role of of wife and also mother. Mm. So there's there's an interesting suggestion, an interesting parallel perhaps between Lizzie Kaplan's character, who's on the precipice of mm. of you know potentially renouncing her role as suburban housewife mm. too. So th- there's an interesting dynamic at play here that that to me suggests that this this might rise above your run of the mill, you know, Upper East Side mm. Woody Allen, you know, solipsistic, and you know, think piece. My first instinct watching it is that that's what it was, but I, yeah, I can kind of see in a way that's what it's about. I mean, I wonder if there's something here just generally about the waning of New York generally. Mm. So remember that what was that show we watched uh, with Neil Patrick Harris? The kind oh, of yeah. gay, gay. It was about a gay middle aged couple, like un, uncoupled or yes, something. Yes, uncoupled. That, yes, that was a show which seems so nostalgic for a certain kind of cliquey New York gay scene. Mm, and this mm. is kind of similar in the sense that it's, you know, there was a time when New York was such a privileged site in American cinema for chamber dramas mm, and relationship mm. dramas and marriage breakdowns. It was like the European city yeah. in American cinema. And it just feels like that's waned a lot in recent years. Mm. And, you know, just anecdotally as a, with a partner who's from New York, like each time I go to New York, it feels more and more generic mm. and more and more like any other city. Mm. I just wonder if th- there's something about that going on here, about that anxiety. And I also, like I feel like, I remember when I worked at Berkeley at the bookshop in the 2000s, there was a whole wave of like quirky New York novels, like mm. Jonathan Safran Foer, Friends, and, and they were always about people, you know, they're always about quests or people who are missing or, mm. you know, great epic New York stories that really felt like they were trying to rehabilitate New York itself. Mm. And I feel like this is part of that tradition, like the quest, the missing woman. There's an anxiety that New York has just become like everywhere else. Yeah. I think there's a real anxiety there and because it, it is so... I mean, look, I hear what you're saying about the, the subplot with the friends, but there are two things like I think maybe providing a bit of blockage from here. And firstly is Fleischman. Like, I'm not sure how much time I can spend with Fleischman. Like, I know the series is deconstructing Fleischman, but I know it's like it's like you meet someone at a party and you're back away three hours later. It's like they haven't stopped talking. But also it, it is so, I don't know, it, it's a little bit cringe to me how New York it is. It's yeah. like they, they're so neurotic. Yeah. Like they're all oh. so wacky. Like yeah, I, yeah. I know that's the point, but there's so much New York face here. Yeah, yeah. it's I, a New York fable. It's Yeah, yeah, it could get... It could get a little bit on the nose. Um, so something else I felt about it too, and just you know, that was a bit qualified was, I mean, this feels to me like a pilot helmed by a novelist, right? Like, mm. I know the voiceover is a strong part of it, but there's so much monologue mm. and so much voiceover. Like, it didn't feel quite feel fully realised to me as a mm. pilot. Like, so much of it is dim visually as well. Like, it to me, it was, it didn't feel fully visualised or realised. Like, it was a little bit like watching an illustrated audiobook at mm. times and that that mm. may that may improve but I was just very aware I was very aware of watching a mm. a novel to screen yeah. transplant it, it's quite literary yeah yeah and to me at least that was dense that was that made it you know made me actually want to read the book yeah well that to be honest that may be 
Yeah, and that makes sense because to me, it still it still feels like a book in mm. some ways, which mm. which made it like I said, kind of dense. But look, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm interested. Like, I agree that the subplot with the friends is interesting. Mm. I, I'm not sure how much Flashman I can take. <laughs> I mean, I think they have a very low Flashman <laughs> Flashman threshold. I also. I'm not massively into Jesse Eisenberg as an actor, but he works in this kind of role, Yeah, obviously. Um, he doesn't have the same swagger as a Woody Allen character. No. You know, that's the same intellectual bravado that no. the Woody Allen character does comport himself with, even though he he has this kind of you know patina of self-deprecation. Yeah. There's a real sense of intellectual you know, um, superiority yeah. that... That prevails here. I don't think he don't, he quite no, has that that characteristic. You're right. You're right. Like, I mean, I feel like there is a similar pattern to Woody Allen in so far as you know the neurosis is a veil for just talking about himself all the time. Mm. But it feels less strategic than Woody Allen. Mm. It feels like something for this character that's just evolved as part of his character. Mm. Whereas with Woody Allen, you feel it's very programmatic. And I'm going to talk myself down all the time Mm. so I can surround myself with beautiful young women and name drop to them. Mm. So I feel Mm. like with Woody Allen, it feels more sinister than it is here. Yeah, Um, Yeah, look, I have to say, at first I thought, oh, this is a bit on the nose, Mm. this New York insularity Mm. pretension. But then I kind of progressed through it and I found found the little little, um, adjustments Mm. to the genre... Um, compelling so and yeah. you're right that is quite a plaintive ending mm. with the Lizzie Kaplan mm. character so look I, I don't think I'm an in but if I hear it's good I might come back on board yeah I'm, I'm a hard in for this one interesting okay on to our next show of the week this is a comedy called Chivalry um, half hour 20 minute comedy mm. um, I love a good short comedy mm. and it's it's created and by and stars uh, Sarah Soleimani and Steve Coogan so I basically think of this as uh, Alan Partridge in post-Weinstein Hollywood. Yeah. So the, the premise is we've got um, Sarah Soleimani plays Bobby, who's a film director. Steve Coogan plays Cameron, who's a film producer. Um, Bobby's background is that she's an indie director who made it big with, a, I guess, a neo-realist film about a sex worker, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Mm. And uh, Coogan's character, Cameron, is a producer who's got a history of you know dating secretaries, being with younger women. He's problematic, but not drastically problematic well at least we first suspect. that we've seen and 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 compared to the director that we meet in the early scenes who's just shot a film that is apparently incredibly problematic yeah and to which bobby sarah Soleimani's character is brought on board to to fix yeah, yeah. so do you think he's a, he's a reference to abdelatif kashish i wonder i wonder <laughs> i wonder that yeah 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 it's it's similar in some ways yeah. isn't it the allegations yeah um but so what what ensues in this first episode is basically a comedy of manners where you have a you know inverted commas uh, woke director mm. being forced to collaborate with a inverted commas problematic producer and in particular to rehabilitate one sex scene mm. in the in the film and move outwards from there. The, on paper, that could be a really on the nose premise mm. and it could be really crude, but actually. Both parties really make this, I think. They're both fantastic. Obviously, Steve Coogan's fantastic. Mm. But Sarah Soleimani, who I hadn't seen before, is also great. And it, it kind of captures what's disingenuous about both characters without ever acting like being woke is totally hypocritical either. It's mm. it The way I think of it is it's almost like it's about micro-norms, like little norms that are too, that are too minute or too shifting to ever really allow for any kind of real consensus mm. or... You know, agreement. So the two characters are just continually shifting between these micro norms, 
which makes the comedy really dynamic, but also kind of mild yeah. and low-key. So yeah, it's, it's, very got a, modest. it's got a great, very a great, a great energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost feels like it was shot in the environs of one hotel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that you feel that the two leads have a kind of really natural chemistry, yeah. just bouncing off each other. And that maybe even in real life they're quite, I mean, not different in this way, but maybe they are quite different in real life. Yeah. They're just, it's about a working relationship. Yeah. I mean, this, this, the character that Steve Coogan plays is, is, you know, another incarnation of the Alan Partridge, yep. um, you know, sort of vertex that his, his, his star persona, mm. the character who's a little bit oblivious, mm. but also very pompous, very mm. knowing, mm. Um, ridiculous, mm. a name dropper. Mm. But um, also kind of, deeply concerned about his own image yes like a chronic insecurity yes. hence the younger women yes yes and every conversation is a is a kind of a matter of exerting power <laughs> yep. and influence and authority yep. over the other person yep. so there's a great sequence here where he runs into paul rudd the actor paul rudd who uh, plays playing himself this is great and they have uh paul rudd is dressed up as alexander graham bell yeah and uh, Steve Coogan tries to name drop a bit of Morse code yep. and Paul Rudd corrects him and then they, there's a little bit of a back and forward, um, you know, just puncturing his the Steve Coogan's uh, character's pretension. Yep. Um, and at the end, uh, the Sarah Solomon character says, oh, oh, Paul Rudd seems like such a nice guy. And Steve Coogan said, one of the most unpleasant person people yeah. in Hollywood. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, it, and it, it, that really, it builds so, I mean, moments like that are so deft, right? Because I'm thinking of like, remember Paul Rudd's cameo in Parks and Recreation, mm. where he just plays that generic, idiotic, nice guy. Like, it's so easy to use Paul Rudd as a nice guy cameo. Mm. And mm. just the sting in the tail here is where it, that leaves that last comment. Yeah. It's a thoroughly unpleasant person. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it, that, that comic persona that he has is just so good mm. in whatever, whatever incarnation. Mm. It's put in whether it's mm. in the trip, mm. where he's kind of playing a version, a hyperbolic version of himself, mm. or Alan Partridge, where he's playing, you know, a character who is really feels his his you know, the the job he's doing is well outside his station and experience and and knowledge. It's almost like um what makes that persona so great is its pettiness. Yes, like whether it's insecure or you know um like ambitious or you know. Like whatever qualities it has, it's always it's always inflected through a kind of mild and very British pettish petty, yes. pettiness. The <laughs> pettiness. stakes are always small. <laughs> the, the, yeah, very small, very low stakes. stakes. Yeah, but like just a winner, winner point for for its own sake. Yeah, often, yeah. a winner sort of moral point. In the trip, I mean, he and Rob Brydon, it is everything is is epic, but also petty. Yes, at once. just petty, <laughs> petty rivalries. Yes, petty competition. Who can do the best impression? Yeah, <laughs> can win the little. Yeah, yeah. it's like little sort of. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah. There's there's a, there's a kind of um, the kind of competitiveness of the kind of beta male. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That we see. Yeah. in those uh, in those versions there. So Steve Coogan's camera uh, character Cameron does have a lot of those characters. Mm. The kind of yeah, the ridiculousness and pomposity mm. of an Alan Partridge character. Until mm. I think there's a suggestion of potentially a darker undercurrent yep. to this character at the end, and I think that's. That's where this series gets a little bit more interesting, mm. I think, towards the end when it's suggested that both Sarah Soleimani's character and Stephen Coogan's character mm. may well have you know, engaged in some pretty exploitative practices here and it might compromise the two of them. And, you know, when niceties just fall, yep. know, fall uh, by the wayside, there's a suggestion they get real with each other and there's a quite a sort of shocking central revealed truth yep. at the end of this, this pilot. And I feel mixed about that in some ways because obviously I want the plot to propel... 
but also I like the low-key sitcom vibe mm. of it. So did, did you see Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa? <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. So that, that was, I thought that was funny in some ways, but just the high-stakes situation, it yeah. lost some of the quotidian yeah. Alan Partridge feel. It's so, such a high concept. No, it's like premise. it's like David Brent, Life on the Road. Like yeah. you, did, you actually just want to see the character in their natural environment. Yeah, low so stakes, I, very low stakes. Exactly. <laughs> So I like the idea of the plot development. I, I just like I like the mildness as it stands. Mm. That said, there is I also I do also like the idea that they're both, you know, because I think there's some I, I read a little bit ahead of the plot, and there's a suggestion that there's some kind of nefarious Saudi agency or something which is behind the film itself. Right. And I like the idea that it's almost like you have this. Basically, he is a problematic persona, and she's a woke persona, and you have these two personae. That end up that they're being co-opted by corporate forces. It's like if mm. it's like if people warring on Twitter actually turn their energy against Twitter. Yeah, like yeah. And in terms of pomposity, I mean, we've talked a lot about his pomposity, but it does capture the pomposity of a certain kind of wokeness as well. Mm. Like, not of course, wokeness isn't inherently pompous, but just a certain kind of it. So, you know, for example, she corrects him and tells him to use the word sex worker instead of the word prostitute. But then we also find out that, and and she kind of berates him for his promiscuous lifestyle but we actually find out then that for her film she visited a whole lot of brothels around the united states and interviewed a whole lot of prostitutes sorry sex workers presumably without paying them and then decided upon the sex worker she wanted to film and we never hear anything about that woman Mm. so it feels like you know in her quest for authenticity in her quest for veracity she's actually been fairly exploitative as well Mm. she's She's found non-traditional actors. She's interviewed people without paying them. So it kind of begs the question is, is what she's doing with these sex workers actually that much less exploitative mm. than mm. what he does mm. with younger women? And, you know, yeah. she she knows the lingo, but she, do you know what I mean? She uses and discards them as well yeah. in a different way. Both characters are somewhat unmasked at yep. the end where yep. they get real with each other. Yep. <laughs> and the tone sort of does a kind of yeah. screeching U-turn. Which is which I which is not bad, but I, I do think this sort of low key, um, you know, mild satire is an appropriate mode mm. for tackling the kind of post Me Too Hollywood I, environment. And this is what I mean by kind of micronorms, right? Like you know, obviously everybody knows in big picture what right and wrong is mm. and what the right thing is, but it seems like there's been a trickle down effect where there are you know these these tiny norms are now being renegotiated, where it, it is very hard. It's almost impossible for there mm. to be any consensus. And I mean maybe. Maybe I'm showing my ignorance here, but they talk a lot about the C-bomb and a big, um, I won't say the word in the podcast, but a big question throughout the episode is, is it appropriate to use a C-bomb to refer to a person or a body part or neither? Mm. And that this is continually renegotiated mm. over mm. the course of the episode. And almost like, it's almost like both characters realise after a certain point, they're not going to get agreement. So they just have to keep renegotiating it yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think with this this new Hollywood, it's new practices as well. Mm. Intimacy coordinators, mm. and um, you know, you need to have two women in the room mm. with a senior producer, like they do here, leads to some interesting, you know, renegotiation mm. of you know the cultural power, power and mores that we see, and it's a, it's a mild a mild satire mm. of maybe some of the absurd outcomes mm. that can that can arise when you've got this. Um, these practices when necessarily people's gender don't necessarily conform with the sort of mm. you know the necessary logical consequence of these and that that, that seems well. a good scene too that's a perfect scene because the assistant whose name is Emma is african-american mm. yeah and so she's there in a purely administrative capacity and at first Sarah Solowani says to Steve Coogan should we ask her for some of her ideas no sorry she's there in an administrative capacity and she volunteers she volunteers 
No, sorry, I'm getting this up. Let me start again. She's there in an administrative capacity, and Sarah Soleimani asks her full name, mm. right? So, and it turns out Steve Coogan doesn't know her full name, so it makes him look kind of ignorant. Mm. And Sarah Soleimani also suggests they get her input, and Steve Coogan kind of resists that a bit because he sees her as merely an administrative assistant, so he looks a bit ignorant there. But then when the AMA character provides her input and it doesn't conform with what Sarah Soleimani says, she promptly dismisses it. Yeah. So it's a scene that really captures in a nice way the blind spots of both characters mm. in a way that's kind of, I don't know, like punctures their pomposity, but also doesn't make you hate either of them. Mm. So mm. just it, it's very mildness, I think, is a nice tonic to some of this, the stuff you know, the stuff that can be a little bit black and white sometimes mm. on social media. And obviously mm. it's not to condone visiting sex workers, it's not to condone stuff that happens in Hollywood, but just to say the series has got a deft a deft take mm. on some of the tiny mm. tiny little negotiations that can sometimes explode in big ways. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I, I thought it was It's a mild and gentle satire. Yeah. It's a gentle tonic yep. for these troubled times. Yes, I agree. And just I just think also above and beyond its content, just two actors here in the lead roles um, Coogan and Soleimani, who are both really great and mm. both inhabit their characters in really dynamic ways. So mm. I, I thought it was good. Like, again, I, I started thinking, oh, is this going to be a bit on the nose? But I I really like it. I'm going to yeah. keep watching it. Any Steve Coogan is good Steve Coogan in my book. That's a, that's a good point. Like, is there bad Steve Coogan? I don't think there really is. There's been a few Hollywood movies where his persona has been watered down so much that he's lost his comic edge. I was going to say bad cameos in Hollywood films yeah. but Steve Coogan vehicles yeah. I don't think he playing like, this character no. some version of it is, yeah. is always a winner it's like it's his version of Englishness Yeah, it works so well so look yeah, I'm an in I thought this was great I'm an in too alright on to our archive corner mm. for this week and I've chosen another entry in the Sheridan Expanded Universe bookending it in this case the Mayor of Kingstown mm. which is a fairly confusing name given the prominence of another Mayor of yep. something town that was released last year, Billy? Mayor of Easttown. Mayor of Easttown. To the point where I, I had quite a few conversations with people at the time where for a couple of minutes we'd be talking at cross-purposes. You'd be like, the prisons were amazing. I know. That. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> they well, were. Well, I hadn't seen Mayor of Kingstown, so I'd be like, what? <laughs> where, like, the what now? What, where, where was Diane Weist? <laughs> it's the Mayor of Kingstown. It's an American crime thriller television series. Uh, it was created by Taylor Sheridan and Hugh Dillon. Uh, premiered on Paramount+. Plus. And it has actually been renewed for a second season, despite mm. its fairly middling critical reception and not particularly strong reviews. So, oh, really? I, I, for some reason, I thought it was really critically acclaimed. No, no, not. no, not, not necessarily. Uh, so the premise of the, the Mayor of Kingstown is that we, we enter the world of the McCluskey family, who are power brokers in the, the sort of deindustrializing town of Kingston, Michigan, where, given the, the flight of all this other production... Uh, the main business is incarceration, mm. and it's the site of a, a series of thriving private prisons. Um, so uh, the, the McCluskey family uh, is comprised of uh, Jeremy Renner, who's playing Mike McCluskey, and his brother, uh, is Kyle Chandler, who's playing Mitch McCluskey, who are both present in this pilot. Now, uh, Mitch McCluskey is the oldest of the McCluskey brothers, has, has taken over the role, taken over the mantle of, of the mayor mm. um, from his father mm. uh, and when we see in the, in the in the pilot. And this is a, quite an unusual role. So you might even describe it as a sort of go-between role. Mm. So he negotiates between the the outside world and the world of these these private prisons. Mm. So his role is really to, to ensure that there's stability 
in the prison system and mm. also outside the prison system. It's like he's part warden, part mayor, part don. Yeah. Basically, it's like it's like people come to him for favours. Yes. He's like a, like a fixer, mm. a fixer in the prison system. Mm. So, you know, victims of, of crime will come to him and, mm. you know, appeal for them, for the, the perpetrator of this to mm. be to be given, you know, really ill treatment in the prison mm. and vice versa. Mm. And he's, he's, you know, prison guards will appeal to him about, you know, their rights in the prison. Mm. And he's sort of trying to fix and, wor- and work out these situations. So it's an unusual and ambiguous role. And the show has an I- interesting structure, doesn't it, insofar as for the first, like, I guess, act, the first third, we don't even enter the prison. No. We just approach the prison through these negotiations. Yeah. So yeah. We, it, all the stuff is negotiations around the prison. Yes. And the important, I guess, thing to, to recognise is this town is is a real, you know, um, a vestige of the of the prison. Mm. So the prison is is effectively the mm. town, and and all the the services around it are are servicing this prison. Well, you know, people talk about the prison industrial complex in mm. America today. It feels like this series is trying to envisage it, right? So yeah. we've got in we've got the only people we're seeing in the series are prisoners, people who work at the prison, or people who used to work at the prison, and the only spaces we see are prison, industry, public housing. Yeah. So it just it's the prison has completely taken over the public sphere. And kind of the private sphere of the mm. town too. So everyone's public and private life is bound up with the prison. And as a result, there's all these strange thresholds between public and private space and between the prison and the outside world. And mm. all this, it's like these opening negotiations and negotiations of where the boundaries of the prison lie. Mm. And they're very porous, like mm. they're very permeable. Like it feels like where the prison in, ends and life begins is very almost meaningless mm. in the mm. show, which I guess it makes sense in that it takes us so long to actually enter the prison because we're, we're already in it. Mm. And by extension, the town itself is a kind of mm. prison mm. given how racially, culturally mm. and economically divided it is. Mm. So you'll see uh, Jeremy Renner's character and his brother have sort of special privileges where they can enter different, different ghettos mm. because of their special status but other members of the town would never do so. It's almost like a fiefdom. Like there's a, mm. it was a big spoiler we'll probably have to get to in a moment, mm. but when a certain character is killed, um, the police clinically affect revenge. Yes. And shoot, you know, they enter the perpetrator's house, put a gun in his hand and just murder him. Yeah. Very clinically and matter-of-factly on behalf of the, the McCluskey family. So yeah. it, it is very much, it's like a city state. Yes. It's like the, the prison industrial complex is a city state. Yes. It's got its own laws, yeah. its own, its own, you know, cultural milieu, mm. its own different stratifications mm. in terms of class, mm. um, obviously its own workforce as well, mm. which is unionized. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and obviously the, the commodities that they're, they're processing and dealing with, which are tends to be the, the minorities, who are mm. incarcerated overwhelmingly? Um, the African Americans, Latinos, and, and in that in that respect, I remember we've talked about it before. The character I find in some ways the most sinister is Diane Weist. Mm. So she plays the matriarch, and she has this very kind of complicated relationship to the prisons and to the family. Like on the one hand, she hates what the McCluskeys do, and the way she deals with that is by having nothing to do with the administration of the prison, but working as a teacher in one of the yeah, prison schools. Yeah, like teaching the pedagogy of the oppressed. Well, exactly, the pedagogy of the oppressed. So we meet her giving a class on um, First Nations history, and mm. we see her giving another class on slavery and African-American history. So there's a really clear lineage here, I guess, between you know colonialism and enslavement 
you know, historically and the prison industrial complex in the present and, you know, contemporaneously. And there's a sense that what we see in the prison industrial complex is just a continuation of colonialism mm. and enslavement. Mm. But what's chilling is all these lessons are coming from somebody who works for the prison. Yeah. So it's like the prison is not just oppressing people, but it's, as you said, it's, it's internalised the pedagogy of the oppressed. Yeah. So here it is oppressing people and giving lessons about how bad oppression is. Yeah. So there's something, there's a real false consciousness to Diane Weiss. And there's mm. a great moment early on where she's just given this very impassioned lesson on, I think, First Nations people. And one of the women in the class comes up to her and asks if they basically basically treat her as an extension of her sons. They, mm. they ask her for a favour mm. and she immediately says, you know, if you ever F and do that again, I'll kill you or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So There's good dying waste there. There's some you very good dying waste. <laughs> yeah, and just because I, just, just I think her character is, out of all of them, her relationship to it is the most tortured and mm. she, she articulates what it actually is in American society. That, that's the point of her lessons in a way, yeah. right? Like the prison is mm. colonisation, mm. enslavement. Yeah. The there's, prison... some, there's whole sections of this and this series that are just very, you know, her lecturing. Yeah. Her... This group. It's very didactic. And... and in that sense, like it reminds me quite a bit of David Simon. So you think about something like The Wire, like in, in The Wire, although it deals with all these different sectors of Baltimore, the horizon of all of them is jail, mm. right? It's prison. It, it, most of the characters have got out of jail or are in risk of going to jail or are destined to go to jail. Mm. This is like a step further. It's like the wire, if the whole wire took place in, in jail, in jail yeah. if it all took place in jail. Yeah. So she reminds me of those kind of expository characters you get in David Simon, yes. like John Goodman in Treme. Yeah. Where they, yeah, like in David Simon, these characters who articulate what's wrong with the system, mm. but it's actually, and of course they're right, but it's actually a way for them to express their own self-hatred at being in the system. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I just found her chilling, like all this talk about oppression and yet she is part of the oppressing family. Yeah. That part of it I thought was, I mean, I think it's all, a lot of it's really effective. That, mm. that I found particularly unsettling mm. to watch. Mm. And I think what's interesting as this series goes along mm. is that those ba- those boundaries between the town and the prison break down increasingly. Mm. And the, the big centrepiece of this of this series is, a, is an Attica-style prison riot oh, where the roles of prison guard and... And prisoner become upended, mm. um, and you know the Mike McCluskey character's fixer role mm. has really got to be you know called upon mm. in extremis. Um, that 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 makes sense because it, it already feels it feels like that is already how can I put it like on the one hand the prison system here is more concrete than ever before, right? Mm. But because prisons are everywhere, the very idea of prisons feels more notional mm. as well and feels mm. more permeable. So. Mm. If all of life is a prison, changing the rules or escaping prison means a different thing. It's, yeah, it, yeah it, it's weird. I mean, the prisons here yeah. feel they feel inescapable, but also precarious. Yes, and there's it no does sense that really of, well. There's no sense that this riot will end in escape. No, there's no and, escape is not a horizon because the the community, the the country itself, is a giant prison. Exactly. That's, you know, that's molding, manufacturing, shaping, mm-hmm. and you know. Uh, producing mm. these commodities, and that—that—that's a nice way to put it because that's ex- you've articulated exactly what I was trying to get at. You feel like no escape is possible, just endless reconfiguration. Mm. Mm. But because the prison is so big and so fluid, it feels like reconfiguration can happen quite easily, mm. even mm. though no one can ultimately escape. Yeah, it's no escape, just negotiation, just and negotiation. negotiation. Yeah. yeah. With that in mind, I mean, one thing I thought was disappointing about this pilot is the twist like should you talk us through because i think you know 
you might want to pause here if you don't want to have a spoiler, but I think it, it's kind of important to understand yeah. the series. So, so the the elder brother, uh, played by Kyle, Kyle Chandler, is is executed in a botched robbery, mm. and that leaves Jeremy Renner uh, as Mike McClusk, the young brother, and the right hand man for Mitch to be sort of cast into this role mm. of the mayor in inverted commas against his his wishes, mm. largely. So it it is very Jeremy Renner centric. Mm. Um, and if you were hoping, if you were a Kyle Chandler's uh, stand, then mm. you might be a little bit disappointed and that, because it's a bit of a red herring, a bit of narrative misdirection in this pilot. And that is something I was a little bit disappointed at because I just I just don't really rate Jeremy Renner that highly. Mm. Like, I don't think he has the, a lot of the charisma. The two of them, I think, would have actually been was fine. really good. That they, was good. Had a, they had a good rapport. They would have bounced off each other a bit more. Exactly. Jeremy Renner's a bit, a bit lacrimose, a bit, yeah. And that that's, that's my concern a little bit, exactly, is lacrimose. And just as, as soon as Kyle Chandler's out of the picture it becomes this kind of lugubrious narrative of the reluctant gangster mm. and the unwitting, the unwilling gangster. And mm. I just, I th- so my experience of watching this was like for the first um, like half, I thought it was really incredible. Like I thought the, pr- the premise was great. The execution was great. It, yeah. It was like if the wire was all in prison mm. and I, I was, I was fascinated to buy the spatial scheme of it. So there's mm. just this almost futuristic space mm. in which everything yeah, is industry prison or public housing? Mm. Like I found myself wondering, well, do they? Like, do cities like this actually exist and in America? Do, yeah. they, so there are prison yeah. cities yeah. like this. Yeah. So some carceral some cities. Carceral cities. Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. So that I thought was incredible, but then the second half, the Renaissance stuff started to feel more turgid and a bit samey and a bit seriousless, a bit a bit more sententious. Mm. Just it certainly does, this certainly doesn't have the wry sense of humour that some of the other Sheridan shows yeah. do have. But I, I agree, there's, there's a few flat spots in this series, but there's, after a few episodes, it really picks up again yeah. and the, the narrative propulsion re-emerges. And, mm. and I think there's also like distinct power centres in, mm. in this series which correspond to the A, B and C plots. And it does decenter Jeremy Renner a little bit more. That's, that's interesting because I, I must say I kind of looked a little bit online just I was curious, and all the images and footage I saw seemed quite different to the vibe of the second mm. half of this mm. pilot episode. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating idea, and it, it, it feels like the next evolution in prison, yeah, the prison genre, right? Yeah. So, as as you said, like a, a prison film where there is no hope of escape anymore, where mm. escape's not even a horizon. Mm. It is just this continuous yeah. recalibration. Yeah. The it's prison like, is the city. The prison is the city, yeah. And the city is the prison. So for that reason, I thought it was really kind of really original and really fascinating. Mm. I just, yeah, and so you say in terms of it being, it feels like a limited series, does it? Is this it, it does, yeah. So the, 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 the entirety of this, I mean, it, it, I often, having finished, watch the first, mm. finished watching the first season, um, I was surprised that it mm. was renewed for a second, given so much of what it said, mm. um, I, I wonder how they could say anything else, where it could possibly go, mm. given the narrative uh, permutations that we see later on. So it feels like a very self-contained miniseries and, and all the better for it. And it is quite uncanny, isn't it, when that happens? Like, I mean, did you see that Your Honour has been renewed for a second season? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so it's like, you know, a show that seems <laughs> so self-contained and so the, neatly the other, wrapped up. The other brother? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gets yeah. into a hit and run? I know. Well, like Bad Sisters. Like, it's such... I reckon we'll look back on that, and that's one of the great kinds of television uncanny of our time, when something seems completely wrapped up. And then it's like it's like if Dickens wrote David Copperfield 2. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, but look, so I, th- I thought this was really interesting. Like, I, it, it got a bit serious. Middle. And actually, it's funny, even thinking about it, like... 
at the beginning of the podcast, I said that Tulsa King was my favourite Sheridan production, but actually thinking about it and revisiting mm. it, I like this is actually really interesting. Yeah, this is I, the, I'd, I'd like to return to yeah, it. Yeah, this, this to me was the sleeper hit yeah. of the last year and yeah. probably my favourite show of the last few years. What do you think is the best of the two Mayor, Mayor series? Uh, I think this this one. I wonder if Mayor of Easttown would have been better if it had landed the ending. Yeah. Which I didn't, I didn't think it... No. It didn't land the ending at all. No, no. The ending was ridiculous. Yep, the ending was... <laughs> this, yep. this, this builds. It mm. builds and builds. It gets better and better as it progresses. Okay. So yeah. the best type of series. I'm, I mean, it's interesting. And in terms of um, uh, archive choice next week, I've might be a bit of an obvious one. I've, I've taken inspiration from Chivalry. So I'm going to go with Alan Partridge. Oh, so yeah. it was, it was, it was interesting reading into it because there's so much Alan Partridge content. Mm. Like he's had radio. For those who aren't fans, it's uh, Alan Partridge is Steve Coogan's main persona. Mm. Um, there've been so many radio appearances and TV shows and specials. His first full-length TV series was Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, but it seems like the one that's got the most acclaim and where he really hit his stride. I think the one I, I remember watching the most is I'm Alan Partridge. Okay. So I think next time we'll immerse ourselves in Steve Coogan, Alan Partridge. I mean, I think he is as good as David Brent almost as yeah. a character. Like he hasn't, I don't think he was ever condensed to, well, maybe I'm Alan Partridge is his version of The Office. Okay. But I'm not sure he was ever condensed to something quite as crystalline as The Office, but I feel like he's, he's as iconic as David Brent in his own way. So yeah, wonderful. Do it next time. Great choice. Cool. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Parlour Club.